0: Hi, and welcome to Failurology, a podcast about engineering failures. I'm your host, Nicole.
1: And I'm Brian, and we're both from Calgary, Alberta, Canada.
0: Welcome to our 18th mini-failure episode.
1: We're bringing you engineering failures in bite-sized pieces.
0: Make no mistake, these are still significant failures, but they either have pretty straightforward causes or they happened a really long time ago and there's not enough information for a full episode.
1: Like we've mentioned before, we have a really long list of failures that we want to tell you about, and this gives us another outlet to do just that.
0: When I say we have a really long list, we have a really, really long list, and we really appreciate every single failure that you add to it.
1: So we're not going to run out of content for a little
0: while. Yeah, we easily have a couple years of content on there. So we're calling these episodes "Failureology Lite.
1: And this week's mini failure is about the Millennium Tower in San Francisco, California, USA. The Millennium Towers were located at 301 Mission Street, which is at the corner of Mission and Fremont Street, in the South of Market district in San Francisco. The towers opened on April 23, 2009, and received Countem Nine awards between 2008 and 2010 from various engineering and architectural organizations, which. Sounds like something that we shouldn't be talking about on a podcast. Not the awards, but something that's failing if it won that many awards. The tower is 58 stories tall, which is about 197 meters. It consisted of mixed-use, primary residential high-rise, and it was the tallest residential building in San Francisco and the fourth tallest building overall. There are also five levels of below-grade parking under the separate 12-story tower on the northeast end of the complex.
0: In May 2016, residents were informed that the tower was sinking and tilting to the northwest, resulting in repair costs and several lawsuits, which is not surprising. I would not be comfortable with this. The geotechnical design, which is how the, the ground below the tower supports the tower and what type of structure that they need to use to build a building that will stay standing, that design included a concrete slab on 18 to 27 meter deep concrete friction piles, which went through the fill and the young bay mud. So since this this tower is located in San Francisco, it's right on the bay. It's soft clay and it's it's very saturated with water. And what they call dense colma sand, which is, I don't think, quite as quite as loose as as what we think traditional beach sand, but still not necessarily strong enough to fully support this building on its own. And so that's why they used these piles, which are which are essentially columns that run from the foundation of the building down into, into the ground. And ideally, they go far enough down that they tie into bedrock. I just don't think they had that option here.
1: Yeah, and, and so a lot of the buildings, the last time I was in San Francisco, which is, I don't know, eight years ago, I don't remember there being a lot of t- really tall buildings in San Francisco. Is that because of the, the soil conditions of coal? Or is it just a design, I, I guess, feature or you kind of building building code or community codes for San Francisco or combination of both? Or do you know why San Francisco doesn't have a lot of tall buildings? Or was I just in the, in the wrong parts of San Francisco?
0: The lack of tall towers, a lot of that stems from seismic activity just because of it being in, a, well, essentially an earthquake zone.
1: Oh, that would also be a very good reason not to have a giant tower. So it makes a ton of sense.
0: Yes. And seismic is something that I think is really, really interesting. I've seen some really cool videos on Reddit specifically about towers moving and swaying in an earthquake, but still standing and not really having much structural damage because they're built for that type of movement. And... I would love to do seismic design on a future episode because a lot of buildings collapsed before they figured it out. So stay tuned for that. Also wanted to mention, so there are several buildings in San Francisco and area that used a similar design, although they did have much longer piles. So those piles went down 61 meters into the bedrock. So they went down twice as far as Millennium Tower. And all those buildings are still standing and not tilting. So I feel like they should have done that at Millennium, but for whatever reason, they didn't. In 2016, the building had sunk 41 centimeters with a 5.1 centimeter tilt at the base and a 15 centimeter tilt at the top of the tower. So remember this building opened in 2009. This is seven years after it opens and it's already got a pretty aggressive tilt to it. The difference between 5.1 centimeters at the bottom and 15 centimeters at the top doesn't sound like much, but that's 10 centimeters difference over the, the height of the tower.
1: Yeah, it's got quite a lean in it. It only took seven years for this tower to develop such an aggressive lean, which with modern engineering and modern geotechnical work and computer simulation, I feel buildings shouldn't lean that much over that short of period of time.
0: At a sinking of 41 centimeters over the course of seven years, you're looking at about six centimeters a year. And just to compare that to New Orleans, it's sinking at I think two to five centimeters per year. And that's that's known to be somewhat aggressive for New Orleans, which they have had varying degrees of success managing. Um so so that's substantial. It's a it's a lot. And and it gets worse. So that's just 2016. We're we're six years beyond that but at this point. Yeah, and
1: as of twenty eighteen, the sinking had increased to forty-six centimeters. So it's got a few more years, a few more centimeters of sinking that happens. And this results in cracks in the basement and the pavement that surrounds the tower. So, As Nicole mentioned, there's a number of lawsuits from the Homeowners Association, another group of homeowners in the city of San Francisco to the developers, an adjacent property owner that started building after the sinking started, and the city. So there's multiple lawsuits that have been filed as a result of this building sinking into the ground and also leaning and twisting a little bit.
0: And everybody's kind of pointing fingers a little bit. Group A sues group B, and group B sues group C, and then group A sues group C, and group C sues group W. Like they're all over the place, and everybody's kind of suing everybody. And to be honest, I don't, I definitely don't blame the homeowners. They didn't sign up for a building that's sinking. I think everyone else should come together and address this issue between the city and the developers and potentially the adjacent property owner if if they're potentially found to be liable. You know, you don't, you don't buy a house in a building that's sinking. People did, they didn't sign up for this. It's not their fault this is happening.
1: Then on September the 9th of 2018, a loud popping sound is heard and a resident in a corner unit on the 36th floor discovered a cracked window. That's not good when you hear a loud popping sound and then a giant crack appears in your window. Especially if you're on the 36th floor, that's a really long way down to the ground no matter what way you take. So these windows that cracked, they were also rated for hurricane winds, so the fact that one of them cracked has led to concerns of a larger structural problem, Unsurprising.
0: Yeah, I think one of the things that concerns me most about the cracking of the window is that, you know, I'm visualizing that the building is a rectangle and the building is sinking and tilting, but still maintaining its shape. But this crack in the window suggests that the building is starting to twist potentially and and it's not staying plumb to itself, even if on an angle. And I think that is a large area of concern that I think needs to be addressed. And so in late 2018, so just a few months after this happened, a structural engineer revealed a solution to underpin the building by installing 52 piles along the north and west sides of the tower under the sidewalk. And those piles were meant to go down 76.2 meters into the bedrock.
1: So, Nicole, I've done a couple of projects that involve piles and pile construction. So these piles that they were putting in underneath the sidewalk, were those coming in at some sort of an angle to... to I guess, come under the building so it could support the building as well? Or do you know how those piles were were working? Are they going to have some sort of bracing that goes between the piles that they set underneath the sidewalk that would go over over to the building just to transfer some of the load from the building and the building piles into these new piles underneath the sidewalk?
0: I don't know too much. Again, not a structural engineer. But from what it looks like, the piles go straight down. But they prevent the tower from from being able to lean any further because they're holding they're holding that foundation wall plumb or at least in place so that it can't continue to tilt. And I think the theory is that, well, one, it'll stop it from tilting and two, that it'll stop it from twisting and putting that extra force on on the building by by having it not kind of stay vertically plumb. In my head, I'm picturing that it would still potentially sink but at least it would sink at a uniform rate if it were to do so I, and I, and that said i think that the i think that the sinking would be significantly reduced they must be tying these piles back into the original foundation to try to hold it in place it's just the detail online isn't isn't quite as in depth to be able to give me all of that information and this work was expected to cost $100 million and is being paid for by a global agreement from a, from a variety of parties with 30% of that coming from the taxpayers. Which I have mixed feelings about. To me, the piles should have gone down to bedrock from the beginning and the city shouldn't have allowed them to not do that. But there's also an engineer of record that signed off on this design. You know, the structural engineer of record and the geotech engineer of record that really should have known better. And so therefore, are they and the developer not liable? And and perhaps they're part of this global agreement. I just, the taxpayers didn't ask for this either. Um, I don't know, perhaps, yeah, I guess the city shouldn't have allowed it, though. That's really what it comes down to. They're supposed to be the stopgap to keep things enforceable.
1: The remediation work started in November 2020, but was halted after the Champlain Tower collapse in Surfside, Florida, led to increased scrutiny of the tilting problem. Nicole and I have talked about the Champlain Tower collapse in some of our new segments. I believe we've done three over various episodes in the normal failureology episodes.
0: Also, Champlain Towers was covered on an episode of Engineering Catastrophes recently, which means that I think... Even though I still haven't been able to find the investigative report, which if you are listening and you know where it is, send it to me because I do check every month or two. But I think enough is known about the failure that we can cover it on a future episode. I I don't think the full report has been out, but I think we kind of know the gist of what happened enough to at least cover it here and, and get the lessons learned, which to me are the most important part. The other thing that I really like about this piece that Brian just mentioned about the work at Millennium Tower being stopped because of Champlain, Champlain was tragic. It was completely awful. Almost 100 people died. They coll- The tower collapsed at one something in the morning. People were sleeping. The building just disintegrated. It was awful. But, and... I shouldn't say but, I'm not making excuses, but silver lining, when something that catastrophic happens, it forces everybody to stop what they're doing and pay attention to the risks that they're taking on. And so I don't want to say Champlain Tower collapsing was a good thing because I don't think that, but I, it was a wake up call that we needed to, to take a look at some of the choices that we're making. And a lot of these failures do that. They, they make us stop and think, hey, is that happened over there and that was really bad. I don't want that to happen to me. Is what I'm doing smart or should I change it? And that's a good thing.
1: Yeah. And I, I think that means, you know, that the safety system is working, that people are taking into consideration, you know, other failures or other, you know, similar incidents that are happening, you know, certainly around, you know, the United States in this case. But, you know, also I think around the world um, and just on the aviation side, like we, we see this a lot happening in aviation. If there's an incident that happens to a particular type of airplane, a lot of the times the the fleet around the rest of the world that has those airplanes in it will be grounded for, you know, a day or a couple days or a week or, um, you know, months or years. In, in the case of the 737 MAX 8 to investigate, you know, that issue. And, and you know, if, if it is an ongoing issue or, or an issue that may pose problems down the road, um, those airplanes can be taken care of instead of having, you know, a catastrophic, you know, failure of a component, you know, happen multiple times. So I think it doesn't mean that the, the safety system and the awareness system of, of other incidents is, is working. Um, so, so I think that's very encouraging, like Nicole mentioned, and not to make light of the disaster that happened in the Champlain Tower collapse, but something very similar could have happened in the Millennium Tower, you know, as well. And, you know, they, they decided that they were going to halt work on, on Millennium Tower repairs until they could figure out, um, you know, if Champlain Towers was going to play a, a role in, in the Millennium Tower repair.
0: Yeah, I just, what I would really, really like, and this is this sounds like a pipe dream that'll never come true, I would love for us to figure out our bad ideas before anyone gets hurt. Maybe I'm too optimistic.
1: I mean, that's, that's the ideal way to do it. Um, and, and I think with, no, I, I think we have come a long way since, you know, engineering design, you know, certainly, you know, thousands of years ago, but even in the last, you know, couple hundred years, and, you know, I'm, I'm going to say in the last 30 years as well, um, with things, you know, like finite element analysis or, you know, computer modeling and simulation work, there's some things that we can do now in, in engineering design that 40 years ago, and, you know, certainly, you know, older than that, hundred years ago that, you know, people couldn't even, even dream of doing it would have taken more than the combined computing power, you know, that was available in the world 60 years ago to do, you know, some things that, you know, people run you know, in a couple hours or, you know, overnight in, in simulation packages. So so I think that has led to us detecting a lot of flaws, but it's also allowed us to create much more complicated designs that also create their own intricacies into things. Because some things that we would think are standard designs now, um, just because we have the engineering tools to to build those things, 25 or 40 or 50 years ago, they wouldn't have even attempted because it would be far too complex to, to engineer with slide rules and drafting tables and, and the limited computer resources that they had at the time.
0: That's true. And I also, I guess we also don't have data on the failures that didn't happen. The, the things that could have failed but didn't. And I, I'd also be really curious to, to look at, you know, I, I keep thinking that the further into our we'll say technological revolution we get, the less failure I should expect to see. But I think, you know, we're building more things now. So as a failure rate per per number of construction projects, where are we compared to 50, 60, 70 years ago? And And perhaps we are improved. It's just because there's so many more things being built. It seems like there's more failures. But really, if you go based on a percentage of construction projects, it's maybe, maybe we have improved. And I just don't know, I don't have that data. Yeah. And I,
1: I think we need to look at the type of failure that's occurring as well, you know, or the, or the cause of failure, the mode of the failure, you know, is it a, you know, a structural concrete, you know, steel, you know, sort of failure um, that might've been common, you know, certainly, you know, we talked about it in that Titanic episode, you know, with, with, or with steel embrittlement where, you know, it's a, it's a material flaw versus, you know, a, a systems failure or, you know, an electrical SCADA system failure that we would we would see now where it's more, you know, on the processing or, you know, computer hardware side of things versus the actual material side. So so I think the reasons that we're seeing failures, the cause of the failure is also something you need to look at instead of just the straight failure rate. The Millennium Tower repair was paused in August 2021 after monitoring revealed the tower had sunk an additional two and a half centimeters, so an inch for, for the non metric people in the world after 39 of the 52 piles were installed this two and a half centimeter drop translated to 12 and a half centimeters of tilt on the top floor as of january 2022 the tower had sunk roughly seven and a half centimeters since the repair work began in late 2020 bringing the total lean at the top of the tower to 65 centimeters that is a ridiculous amount of lean
0: it's, it's two feet. It's a lot.
1: And the worst part about this, I think, this tower continues to lean at a rate of seven and a half centimeters per year.
0: Which is bad. This is bad. One of the things that I think is really unfortunate here is that the engineer who did this design gave pile details and locations, but they left the installation as a design build for the contractor, which I get that that's common practice in a traditional build, but this is not normal conditions. This is this is a significant, I would even consider this an emergency type repair. We have a 58 story tower that is at risk of being uninhabitable. And I think that much more care should have been taken in how this remediation work was installed. And that's not to say that The engineer had to give all those details because the pile contractor does have a lot of expertise in how these things could be constructed. I just think it needed more collaboration, at least in my opinion, with the two parties coming to an agreement. That said, perhaps the contractor, the pile contractor, was required to carry a separate engineer to do that design for them. If that's the case, then I think that's a little bit more reasonable, although you still have two engineers of record that aren't really working necessarily in tandem towards a common goal. They're each looking after separate pieces when you have to look at this as a larger system. So I think, you know, I'm not saying that that everything there was terrible and bad. I just, from, from the information that I've read, there seems to be some holes in this process, and I think it could have been done a little bit better considering how significant this, this failure is. And here's how significant it is. So the tower is currently, as of January of this year, the lean is 65 centimeters at the top. Once that reaches 100 centimeters, which I would guess we're five to 10 years away from, I I imagine as the lean gets greater and greater, it'll start to speed up a little bit because now you've got some forces from the tower helping it lean further. Once it reaches 100 centimeters, the elevators and the plumbing in the building aren't going to operate anymore. They're not going to work and the building will no longer be functional and they're going to have to condemn it and tear it down. You know, these people bought these condo towers. They're in the middle of San Francisco. I'm sure these were not cheap. They pro- Some people probably have their life savings tied into these towers and now they're left with no option but to kind of fight everybody to try to get it fixed. The other thing that's unfortunate, these people can't even sell. They either sell for a huge loss or, I mean, who would buy this? You have to disclose this type of information when you sell. You can't hide this. Everybody in San Francisco knows this is happening. So if you own one of these units, you're likely stuck with it, which is really, really unfortunate. And I would be very unhappy about it if that was me.
1: I would definitely be suing if I owned one of these units and my building tilted seven and a half centimeters a year.
0: Oh, yeah, for sure. And they have a, I mean, they have a really good case, especially if they all band together. You know, if if the homeowners group or the condo board all got together in one, I I think this would be considered a class action lawsuit. I think they have a pretty good case.
1: Yeah, because this certainly wasn't caused by any negligent action on the owner's part or by one or two owners in this, in this condo development. This seems to come down to the soil conditions and the way that the piles were set. So certainly, things that are that are beyond the control, um, and even the knowledge of what would be expected of a of a homeowner. So there you have it—a tilting tower in downtown San Francisco. This failure is still ongoing, and we will continue to follow it. And it may appear in one of our news episodes. It's interesting that this happened in the first place. You would. Think that upon review of the soil conditions the piles would have been extended to the bedrock but what do we know we are certainly not dirt people but then it's also interesting how the champlain towers collapse played a part in the failure and caused everyone to take a step back and examine the issues and propose solutions much closer instead of just trusting that they would work
0: thanks for listening to this mini failure episode for our regular episodes check out failureology wherever you get your podcasts As a Patreon subscriber, we also have a dedicated RSS feed that you can load right into your regular podcast app so that you can get all of your favorite podcasts in one place. So that's really great. If you have an issue getting that to work, let me know. I did just activate it a few weeks ago and I've used it before for other podcasts. It's pretty straightforward, but if you have any problems, just reach out. I can help you out. If you want to chat with us, our Twitter handle is at Failureology. You can email us at thefailureologypodcast at gmail.com. You can connect with us on LinkedIn, or you can message us right in the Patreon app. And there's links to all of these in the show notes. Bye everyone. Talk soon.